John chapter 3. Good to see you this morning. We have uh, lots of our big group, this second service here. Uh, all of our students are coming to the second service. You probably, you probably may be glad you're here um, at this one. It's been an incredible weekend. Appreciate your prayers. Um, got a couple of texts last night from the leaders. Evidently, some um, significant decisions were made in the homes last night. I'm not sure exactly what that is. We'll find that out this morning. But So for that, we're truly grateful. So today, as we walk through this text, we're going to look at a very fascinating Old Testament story that occurred with the children of Israel as they uh, were traveling through the desert on their way to the promised land. And Jesus is going to equate, and he's going to, he's going to use this uh, in the New Testament sense, this Old Testament as an illustration for what he was going to do as he is continuing to help Nicodemus come to a place of understanding. And we're going to talk about snakes today. You like snakes? Snakes are awesome. I think, I think snakes are fascinating. I know a lot of people do not. I cannot imagine a major religious figure throughout the history of the world or even today to refer to themselves as a snake or for someone to refer to them as a serpent and the adherence of that faith to be okay with that. Um, most would say, you cannot say that about my God or about my prophet or whatever to equate them uh, to a serpent or to a snake that is utter blasphemy. It's worthy of punishment. You can't do that. But Jesus himself today will draw an illustration to something that took place in the desert um, with the children, and it's connected to a serpent. As we read um, this text this morning, um, throughout the history of theology and students of the Bible, um, John 3 is a little bit interesting. As you get through it, it's pretty clear, and I think it's probably more next week, where there's been a big deba- debate about, okay, are the, the Scripture we're going to look at today, is this Jesus continuing to speak, or is John adding something here to clarify what um, Jesus has been telling Nicodemus? And so, while we cannot fully settle on, okay, this is John, or this is Jesus speaking. I lean pretty heavily to the point of I believe that this is Jesus continuing um, to communicate to Nicodemus in the most clear way, as he has done so far, to say to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, this is how salvation comes. The Son of Man, the Son of God, he must be lifted up. And so he, is, he has been communicating this um, to Nicodemus, and we will... Just uh, continue to see this conversation, I believe, um, taking place today. So here's what we've looked at so far. So as Jesus has been sharing with Nicodemus about salvation, he has shared with Nicodemus, you and I, mankind, makes zero contribution to our salvation. Salvation is God's work. So salvation is God's work, but there's a human responsibility that is connected with that, and we will begin to see that today today. And we will significantly see it next week when we look at the most famous verse of the last 2,000 years, John chapter 3, verse 16. And, and, and I, I've been studying, I've got, I got ahead. It's an amazing thing when you get ahead. And so, so I've been working on next week's uh, talk. And, and while I know John three sixteen and multiple versions memorized, um, I cannot wait to preach on it. I've never preached on it. I always just throw it into a sermon, but I've never preached on it. And next week is just going to be amazing as we look at John three sixteen 
uh, through verse 18 next week. And so he's been telling Nicodemus, you make no contribution to salvation. It is the Spirit's work who does this. Now, Nicodemus's belief has been, I, by obeying the law, I earn my way, and by doing this, I am creating the way. It, it's in my control, and it's kind of in my power to know the commandments. Eternal life is found in the commandments. And Jesus has just toppled over his understanding of salvation, and it's kind of crumbling and crashing in Nicodemus's life. And so Jesus has been communicating with him, Nicodemus, it's not about what you do, it's about what God does. God does this. As a matter of fact, the Spirit does this. The Spirit blows and goes wherever the Spirit wants to go and rescues and brings people into the kingdom, however the Spirit wants to do that. But there's a responsibility that is connected to mankind, and that is that we believe God does the work of salvation. Our work is we believe God offers this gift, we believe and we receive the gift that comes. And so he's been communicating these things uh, to Nicodemus, and he's going to clarify even more today. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, speaks about the new birth being Christ's work. From verse 11 all the way to 21, um, speaks about in John chapter 3 of mankind's responsibility um, to believe. And while you and I cannot make the new birth happen in our lives, we are to believe in the new birth's offer that comes in, um, from Christ himself. And so we will look at this text. Let's look together, 13 through 15 of John chapter 3. So Jesus now writes, and my, my Bible has them in red, so it must be Jesus' words, okay? So it must not be John. So anyway, um, and I do believe these are Jesus' words. I believe he's given the most clear understanding. Let me say this before you read. Um, this probably, this conversation that we have in John chapter 3 probably took place over multiple hours, maybe four to five hours. Nicodemus came to Christ at night. And so this is just a summary that John has put together under the inspiration of the Spirit to give us the highlights of what happened and took place. All right, now I'll stop talking. Let's read. All right. No one, no one, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's read it again. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. All right, let's, let's look at the first point connected in verse 13. So he says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And so I want to talk about the sole uniqueness of Jesus. Nobody in the history of the world has done what Christ has done on multiple levels, but no one ever has come from heaven to earth. Now, there are, we know that Lazarus died, and for four days he was dead, and he came back to life, but no one, no one has been in heaven, lived there in the glorious center focus of worship among the angels no one has ever come from heaven and came here with the truth from God himself about this salvation that you and I can have through Christ and so Jesus speaking and he makes this unique claim about himself here and you and I should see it 
He is the most unique one in the history of the world. He is the only one who can be referred to as the heaven man who came down to earth. And so the heaven man came here in Christ. And Jesus in, he uses these words in 3.13 to say this, No one besides him has ever ascended in heaven, ascended to heaven. Nobody like him has descended from heaven to make clear the things of heaven to the people on the earth. Only the Son of Man, only the Son of God has come down to give and communicate to you and I everything that we need. By the way, this phrase, Son of Man, goes all the way back to the prophet Daniel. And let me just read that text so we can understand. This was Jesus' favorite phrase to speak about himself, calling himself the Son of Man. This is Daniel chapter 7, 11 through 14. Daniel writes, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And then Daniel says in verse 13, I saw in night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, which is capitalized, and was presented before him. And to him, this Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and all nations and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one which shall not be destroyed. And so Jesus is affirming here, I am that one of Daniel chapter 7. I am the son of man who came to the ancient of days and I was given the dominion over all the peoples and all the languages and all nations. I was given to that to get the glory forever and ever. And so Jesus is making this claim here. Nicodemus, you need to know this. I have descended, I have descended from heaven. I have come from heaven with a heavenly message and the authority to give salvation to people. By the way, Jesus is the only person who came from heaven with the truth of salvation. It is a gift of God. That's what makes our faith so unique. All other religions on the earth today, they originated here. Our salvation originated there. And so he came here to bring salvation, and it's significant. Islam doesn't offer this. Buddhism doesn't offer this. Hinduism doesn't offer this. They were all connected to earth. They are an earthly spirituality. Christianity is a heavenly spirituality that is salvation in a relationship with Christ. The point of the Old Testament was to prepare us for the coming of Jesus, the one who would be given this everlasting kingdom and this dominion. Jesus spent his ministry communicating this. Jesus spent the day of his resurrection communicating what? That he was the point of all the Old Testament writers. He shared it with the two guys on Emmaus. He shared it with the disciples on the night that he was there. As a matter of fact, on the morning of the resurrection, when they came to the tomb, the angel shared this as well, that Jesus is the point 
of salvation. He's the point of the Old Testament. This is what the angel says in Luke 24, 6 through 8. He is not here, by the way. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee? Listen to this phrase. That the Son of Man, going back to Daniel chapter 7, angel connecting Jesus to Daniel chapter 7. He is the Son of Man who is given this dominion, this kingdom. The Son of Man must be, must be delivered into the hands of sinful people and crucified on the third day and rise. And they, it says, remembered Jesus' words as the angel communicates that. Everything Jesus did, everything Jesus taught, everything he was speaking and everything that he was doing, everything that he was revealing came from the one who was the glorious mystery of heaven now revealed to people. He had brought heaven's salvation to earth to people. And he descended from there to here and he brought salvation and he brought the very secrets and the very glory and he made them known to us. Now, Nicodemus wanted to realize, and, or Jesus wanted Nicodemus to realize that all of Nicodemus' education, all of his upright living were not enough, and they were not the source of Nicodemus' salvation. Mankind cannot ascend to heaven. We cannot go up there and snatch heaven and, and, and snatch salvation and bring it down. We can't do it. God had to bring it to us in Christ And so Jesus makes this incredible claim here. No one, no one ever has ascended to heaven and descended from heaven and brought salvation except the one who is the Son of Man. And the great danger that Nicodemus had and that you and I would face as well is that there was a danger in not believing and receiving the gift of the offer and rejecting the one who came and said, I am offering my life, I'm offering this gift to you and to reject it and to continue to stay in our sin and the danger of not understanding salvation um, in Nicodemus's life in the moment but also in the life of Israel in the Old Testament as Jesus now begins to share a story and pointed um, this to them and so he tells us by the way let me just say this um, this phrase I came down from heaven is littered all through uh, John's gospel it's in 6:33-6:38-6:51-8:42-13-3-16-28-17-5-4-Jesus-says-I-came-down-from-heaven-I'm-the-one-who-descended-from-heaven-so-the-uniqueness-of-Jesus-is-spoken-of-so-here's-what-
to him about where they were and what God wasn't doing enough for them. And, and so uh, these snakes come into the camp. They're biting them. Uh, they realize we're the problem of this. They run to Moses and they say to Moses, Moses, go to God and plead for us. And, and so God says, okay, here's what I want you to do. Um, I want you to make a bronze serpent and I want you to put it up on a pole and you tell the people, everybody who looks to the bronze serpent, if they'll look at it and believe, your salvation will come and healing will come even if you have been bitten by the serpent. So let's see this story that Jesus is referring to. Numbers 21 and verse 4. So from Mount Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. Nobody in the room is impatient, right? Oh, y'all have got that down, right? Okay, got it down. All right, okay. All right. Verse 5. And the people spoke in their impatience against God and against Moses. And here's what they said. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. What's the worthless food that they loathed? The manna. God, we're so tired of this. Verse 6. So here's how God responds. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to Moses make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live so Moses made a bronze serpent and he set it on a pole and if a serpent bit anyone he would look at the bronze serpent and live so I just want to take a little bit of time here and let's kind of set the stage of seeing another perspective of our sin nature, seeing another perspective of what sin does and the fiery bite of sin and and the reality of that and what our hope is in our salvation. Again, Jesus uses this illustration. This is him using this illustration from Numbers 21 and attaching it to what he was going to do. The serpent was lifted up. He would be lifted up. So let's talk about the danger of missing and rejecting God's provision to rescue us from the issue of sin in our lives. So here's the context. They have left Egypt. They have been complaining all along the way. Oh, man, if we could just go back to Egypt. Egypt was such a great life. And I'm going to read a passage in a moment. It was not a great life in Egypt. And they're just... They're not far from the promised land. They are not far from Canaan. But God had told them they had just come from a place and they'd wiped out a people and they'd won a victory. And now they come to this people group called the Edomites, the land of Edom. And God had told them, don't fight those people. There's some people that they wanted to fight. Don't fight them. And so they're there. And the Israelites, they want to go through Edom because if you go through Edom, shortcut, it's shortcut. We all have shortcuts, right? traveling shortcut get there a little faster if they could go through Edom 
Then they would be just right on the brink of the promised land. Well, the Edomites said, no, you can't pass over our land. And so we're not going to let you do that, and you're not going to fight them. You're not going to walk through and just go, okay, we're going to deal with them like we dealt with those other people, and, and we'll just, that'll just kind of get us through. And so, so there, the promised land's in the northwest, and God tells Moses, now you're going to have to go southeast away from the promised land. Oh, the people do not like this plan because it, it's going to make things be much, much further. So Moses leads the people to the southeast, away from the promised land, which is located in the northwest. Has this ever happened to you in your life? You're right on the brink of something. Boy, you can, you can see it. And then God allows something to come in, and you've got to take a detour. It means more time, more energy, more money. Just come on, God. Come on, God, be the God of shortcuts. Well, if you've walked with him for a while, is he the God of shortcuts ever? Sometimes, but for the most part, God is wanting to do something in our life, and that's develop godly character. And so here they are. They have to go away from the promised land, and it makes no sense to them. They're going to have to go all the way around it. And let me give you the principles uh, through this text here. Here's the first one. They became impatient with God's leadership. They didn't like what God was doing. And boy, I tell you, that just dominates our culture today. One of the reasons people want to reject Christ is they don't want anyone to control them. We want to be, we Americans, want to be in control of our lives. We want to be in control of our, our destiny and our future. And we want to just march through. And so that's what they want to do. And because God's making them kind of go around, not kind of, he, He's making them go around, they become very impatient with God's leadership and Moses' leadership. So in verse 4, they set out on the way to the Red Sea to go to the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And so while they were journeying through the wilderness, the people got tired of the way things were going. They were tired of the food. They were tired of the travel. They were tired of the, tired of the direction God was leading them. They were tired of not having a city of their own. They were tired of unpacking their stuff, packing their stuff, unpacking their stuff, packing their stuff, tired of the journey, tired of the wait. They were just plain tired all the way around, and they, yet they had to rely on God's steps. They couldn't go out on their own and march to the promised land. And so in light of that, God was to blame for what was happening and taking place in our lives. You know what happens in impatience? When impatience dominates our lives, it leads to always a spirit of complaining and regretting that something has changed in our purposes. And we would rather have, watch this, our old life again. Because I don't like what God's doing, and it'd just better be better for me if I could just go back to the old ways, and I wouldn't be frustrated. Listen, the shortcut is not always the fastest and best way. Do you remember Gideon? Gideon had 10,000 men that they could have fought in a battle, and God said, no, that's too many. How about 300, Gideon? Military conquest-wise, that's not real wise. It looks better to have 10,000 than to have 300, but see, God doesn't do things that way. How about this one? Joseph is 17 years old. He's six. Joseph, Genesis Joseph always have to clarify Genesis Joseph is six years old when they move to the land of Canaan he lives in Canaan for actually sorry he's 11 I believe it is and he lives in Canaan for 
six years. He ends up living 110 years. He spends 93 years of his life in Canaan or in Egypt. In Egypt. As a matter of fact, he never goes back to the land of Canaan again. He never goes back. He lives just a brief time of his 110 years. And, and this happens. He's 17, gets a dream. His brothers, his mother and father are going to come and bow down to him because he's going to be this great ruler one day. And they don't like it. He's sold into slavery. And as he's sold into slavery at age 17, from age 17 to age 30, he is working in Potiphar's house or he's in prison. Does that look like a pathway to get to be the second most powerful person, to have your family come and bow to you, to be accused of rape, to be a slave, to be in prison? So when he's in prison at 28 years old, he's, he's been in Egypt now for 11 years, he interprets the cupbearer and the baker's dream. And he thinks, you're going to get out. Hey, tell them that there's a guy down here. And they get out and they forget about him. And he stays two more years in prison. Two more years. And finally, Pharaoh has these dreams. Nobody can interpret them. And at age 30, so from 17 to 30, he is just in obscurity, breaking of Joseph's life. And that was the pathway God led him to. And then by God's design, which is always the case, When God's ready to move and work and get us to the place where he wants us to be, Joseph is brought up out of prison, interprets Pharaoh's dream, and then he lives the remainder of his life. Ninety-three years he lived in Egypt. Six years he lived in Canaan. See, the shortcut is not always the best thing for us. How about King David? We believe that he was somewhere around 10 to 13 years of age. When Samuel came and anointed him to be the next king. At 15 to 17, somewhere in their age, he fought Goliath and defeated Goliath. And then you know what happened from then? He spent the next 20 to 25 years being chased after by who? King Saul. Now, wait a minute. Didn't, didn't God reject Saul back then when Samuel anointed him to be king? Yeah then why did it take about 20 to 25 years until David was going to get on the throne? And here's what I, I know this to be true in my own life now. I'm finally old enough to get a clue about things and to also not have a clue about things. We want the shortcut. David could have said, Josiah was eight when he became king. I'm 12. Why can't I go sit on the throne in, of Israel? No. God had some things that he wanted David to go through so that when David did get on the throne, he would be ready. Listen, church, we want to rush things. We want to rush things. And God wants to make us godly. And the rushing things and shortcutting things isn't going to happen. And so some of the stuff that we can look back over our lives and we can go, boy, before that, when while that was going on and when that was coming up, boy, I, I was just right on the brink of that. Now I eventually got there where I think I was going to be, but it took about 25 years to get there. 
And so we must embrace that. But the people, they were impatient with God, and they just thought, God, what, what are you doing? We don't like what you're doing, and we're tired of all of this. And so secondly, here's what they did. They spoke against God's leader, Moses, and God. So they were impatient, and they began to speak about them. Now, this whole generation has been dying off anyway because of their complaints. And they spent, listen to this, listen to this. They spent 40 years complaining. 40 years Never got to a place where they were going to be content. And so none of them got to go in, but their kids got to go in. Because God just got tired of the complaining um, with them. And so God, had, all he had done was be good to them. He had delivered them from Egypt, um, from Pharaoh's army. He had given them water in the desert. He had given them food every morning. And he led them all the time with his presence. And he was good for them. And so even though this was the case, they couldn't get this complaining thing under control in their lives, and they just continue to say, God, you're not doing enough. Have you ever been there? Where we just gripe about the current circumstances in our lives. God, my finances aren't where they need to be. God, you need to do something about that. And I think sometimes God says, why don't you do something about that? I've given you this money. Do you have a brain? Do you have a computer? Do you have an Excel spreadsheet? Do you have a piece of paper? Can you handle your finances in a biblical way? And so we complain about that. We complain, God, my job isn't better. God, I don't live in the right neighborhood, or my spouse is not up to par. God, my car is not better. And we complain that God has not provided. And I think sometimes we just look around and and we ought to be thankful that we have anything because we don't deserve anything at all. So they blame God. And what Nicodemus, the place Nicodemus was at, the place the children of Israelites were at in the desert is they couldn't see that they needed a savior. They wanted to be in control of things. They wanted to, they wanted to, let, let's just get to the promised land and let's enjoy the land that's flowing with milk and honey. And they didn't want to take the time and do what was right and not complain against God. And so religion, which is Nicodemus, says things like this. Um, I'm going to earn my way. I'm going to do enough to earn my way. Or religion is kind of has the idea of just God's, God's so loving. He just skips over sin. He, you know, he doesn't really care about those things. But biblical Christianity affirms that God never ignores sin. He is holy and just. And there is no possibility for you and I to take care of our sin because our goodness will never be enough. And the Savior... Therefore, alone has the power. So they're impatient. They speak against God's leadership. They speak against Moses' leadership. And thirdly, they long for the life in Egypt and the provision of Egypt, the things of the earth over God's provision for them. So they say in verse 5, there's no food or water and we loathe this worthless food that God has given. And so they, they didn't like God's faithful and gracious provision of manna for them. And they drifted back into a slave mentality. Oh, if I could just go back to Egypt. Egypt was so awesome. Go, Egypt. Go, Egypt. It was so great. Could we go back there? Just Man, we could go back there and, and just we'd have our old life back. And it would be awesome. Let me tell you what their life was like. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So the Egyptians ruthlessly, I don't know if that's words good in your 
book, but I think when someone's ruthless towards you, that's not good. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and they made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, can I ask a question? If God is leading them to the promised land, and that's what life was back in Egypt, which one of those is better? As a matter of fact, I mean, it's pretty obvious, right? It's God's leadership, even though the desert was tough. I'm not saying the desert life was a piece of cake. It wasn't. That was hard life, marching to the promised land. But let me just ask this. Do you think the Egyptians, if that whole nation came back, they just would have opened the doors and go, oh, y'all just come on back in. We love y'all. Their entire army had been wiped out. There is this craziness in our minds that our old life would be better than the difficulties and the crushing that comes in our faith. It's not better. Egypt was not going to invite them back. They weren't going to let them have what they had before. And so this slave mentality of going back just mocked the promise of God and His leadership in their lives. And they longed for Egypt over God's provision. And that life in Egypt in the moment seemed better, but it was not going to be better. And so here's the fourth thing that they do. They allow the circumstances in which they were in to be more important than the presence of God in their lives. And so here's what was true about them. God led them. I, I just, again, sometimes I wish just for a brief moment, could we just go back and see something? Can you imagine what it would be like that the presence of God in a pillar of fire at night was leading you and lighting the way? Can you imagine seeing that? Can you imagine seeing this unique cloud? The cloud wasn't God, but it was God, God leading them with this cloud and leading and guiding them to the promised land and seeing that, knowing this. He, look, there it is, visible picture. He is leading us. Let's trust Him. Look what He did to the Egyptian army. Look what He did. He allowed us to leave Israel. And so they allowed the circumstances of manna and God, now we've got to go around eat them. God, what are, you, what, are you, what are you doing? And they allowed all of this to rob them of what God was doing every day. Do you know what? Listen, listen to what it says about the manna. Every morning they woke up and what was on the ground? Manna, food. Listen to what it was. In the morning when the manna was there, you shall see in the manna the glory of the Lord. And so now they're tired of what? The glory of the Lord. I mean, think about that, Vermont. Every day that you wake up, God put food on the ground for you to eat. There were no stores. There was no, we have this subdivision back here, and we hear the, the honking of the horn for all the workers to come out to the, the truck that comes through with all the food. There were, no, there were no caravans coming through with tacos. They woke up every morning, and on the ground, they could go out, and they could gather food for the day, and they'd just grown tired of it. They allowed the circumstances to rob them of the glory of the presence of God in their life. And so they longed for the old life in the land of the gods instead of a future in the promised land with the only true God that is Yahweh. And I tell you, it's a horrible thing. And so God, 
is not real happy about that. And so he sends these snakes to come in to bite the people. Someone grab something. So snakes are coming in and all kinds of stuff's going on and boy, I like snakes. I I know some of y'all don't like snakes. Again, I think they're fascinating. I've had two pet snakes in my lifetime and um, I had one a couple years ago that I'd left my window open on a Wednesday and I'd gone home and in my office I'd come back and my books off my bookshelf and stuff off my desk were all over the floor and I'm like what in the world's going on and two more weeks go by and Rocky and Mark and I were moving some stuff in my office and we moved a filing cabinet and a rat snake from my shoulder down to the ground had been living in my office for two weeks I'd been officing in there and I'd never seen him he'd never made a noise but I'd come in and um, during that two-week time, and, and I'd find stuff on the floor and just wonder, what in the world? How's my stuff falling off of my shelf? And that rat snake was trying to find a way to get out. And so, um, anyway, so snakes loved me, I think. I don't, I'm not totally for sure, but um, he never scared me to death. But here's the point. Here's the solution. So the snakes are biting the people. And so Moses says, make a bronze serpent and put it on a stick and lift it up. And everybody who's been bitten by the fiery serpents, if they will look at this, they will be healed. Now all around them, so here's the option. You can look and live, or you can reject and die. you got, you got two options. There's two options for this. And so the Lord... Number says, sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit them, and, and they go to Moses. Moses, help us. And so here it is. And so here's the point back then and also in, in the text in John chapter 3. So Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And here's the reality from the Numbers 21 in John chapter 3. God alone has the power to cure us and free us from the bite and the venom and the poison from sin that is that is just dominates our life. There was no rescuing of this. So we look up. Moses lifted up, lifted up high so that people can look upon the serpent. And when they do, even if they have been bitten, they will be free. They they look at this. Now the, the Jewish rabbis used to teach that the, the serpent wasn't the salvation, but it was the one who spoke and told Moses to do this. And so the people were being called to trust in what God had told Moses to do. If they will look to the serpent, then they will be healed. You see, God alone has the power to take away the bite of sin. And everyone who was bitten couldn't do one. All they had to do was one single thing to save themselves, for God had made a way and that was to look at the serpent and to believe. Now, let me just ask a question. Is that, if you were in the camp, does that sound a little silly to you? Somebody might have said, what? What are you, what? What are you, what are you talking about? Didn't God say, don't, don't make images? And now God said, make an image? What? what? Wait, wait, wait. What's going on here? Yeah, look at this. Listen. The message of the cross, Paul said, to the natural man is what? Foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of 
God. And so the world may not get it. People in the camp may not get it. That's, that's a crazy plan. Look to a serpent and be rescued. Yeah. Look to a man who died a cruel death. We, 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 we wear crosses around our neck. And we put them up on our wall. And, and we put them on our t-shirts. But 2,000 years ago, nobody was, had cross earrings. It was the most despised thing that could ever be. It's been softened 2,000 years later in it. But I tell you, this was scandalous, this message of the cross. Because if you went through the Roman world, you saw people who literally would hang on there for days. And it was gruesome. And it was horrible. And so the message of the cross is foolishness. The message of a serpent would have been foolish as well. But here's what God did. He provided a supernatural solution. And it came from God's sovereignty to rescue the people. Go back to John chapter 3 and we're going to finish things up there this morning. So not only did God supernaturally provide the way of salvation, He has the power to do that. You and I have to look with faith at God's provision. In the midst of the chaos among the people, these instructions again might have seemed strange to them, out of place, but one had to embrace what Moses told the people. Notice what Moses doesn't say to everyone. Look at the serpent and take some Advil. Look at the serpent, drink some herbal tea, and rub some essential oils in your wound. He doesn't say, look at the serpent, make some sacrifices. Look at the serpent, do some chanting. Look to it. Watch, nothing to add to this. It's lifted up high. Look at it. There's nothing to be added. Don't go take a snake class, snake handling class. You don't need that. Just look to the supernatural provision under God's sovereignty. And if you'll look to that, that bite that is killing you, you will be healed. Now that's a miracle. Picture that. Serpents everywhere biting people. They are dying, laying on the ground. Moses lifts this up. And in their last moments, healing comes upon the people. And what was there killing them is gone. And they stand up alive again because of God's work so look with faith at God's provision the sufficiency of the cross it's clear there's nothing to be added to the work of the cross it's not the cross plus our money it's not the cross plus our church attendance it's not it's not the cross and water baptism it's not the cross and good works it's not the cross and fasting for 40 days nothing The sufficiency is found in the cross. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Look at the serpent and live. Look at the one who died and live. Believe. That's what you do. They were to believe in the desert. We are to believe in what's been done for us. So they rush to the people. This great intercession happens with Moses. And as they look at this, they are freed for that. Let me, let me just say this. Jesus, when he died on the cross, bore the venom of sin. He bore it in his body. And he took that away from us. Do you remember the thief on the cross? Three of them there. The thief on the cross, what did he do? He just looked at Jesus and he said, hey, Will you remember me today when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus said, yeah, 
you'll be joining me today in paradise. What did the thief do on the cross? He just believed. He looked and he believed. There was an offer to him. Look and believe. And Jesus is about to say, and we'll talk in detail about it next week, but we'll touch on it here in just a moment. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. It is expansive and it's specific. Whoever believes God so loved the world that whosoever specific, expansive, and specific may have eternal life. And it's for the most vile and it's for the moral yet still lost. Matthew the tax collector, a woman at a well, a demon-possessed man, a prostitute, and a Pharisee named Nicodemus were all invited to come and to believe. And by the way, when we're invited to come and we do come, this is what Jesus said. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever, same word, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast them out. I'm not going to turn them away. I'm not going to cast them out and nothing else is needed. Just a couple more things. The last part of 14 says, and so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus uses this Old Testament picture different kind of story and he connects it to himself communicating to Nicodemus this that just as those who looked at the serpent in the wilderness were healed those who looked in by faith and received the gift to Christ will be who has been lifted up will have eternal life and he says these words so must must it had to happen the son of God be lifted up so what does this mean lifted up what does this mean that he's been lifted up. I think it points to two things. One, I think it points to the cross. By the way, this is the earliest statement of Jesus in the Gospels to indicate how he was going to die. He would be up off the ground. He would be lifted up. So, so in, the, in the Gospels, this, this phrase lifted up in the Greek is connected to lifting up of Christ on the cross. It also refers to his ascension where he would leave here and he would go back. He would be lifted up again and he would return back to heaven and sit down at the right hand of his father. And I'll say this to us today. It's this. Twice here it says lifted up and that is our role. What is our role today? We lift him up this morning. We lift him up through preaching, through singing, through praying, through fellowship. We lift up the name of Jesus. Lift him up. Lift him up for what he has done. Look to him. And here is the reality for Jesus. He has a crown. And he's always had a crown. He has always been the king of the universe. But in his ministry here, the glorious crown came as well, more affirmed because of what he did by laying his life down and bearing our sin. And there's always this way, before there is the crown, there's a cross often of killing ourselves so that he would be magnified and he would be glorified. Lastly, so what's the role of the sinner? What's the sinner to do? Well, here's what Jesus says in 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal eternal life listen we don't save ourselves we don't choose i was born august 25th 1965 i didn't decide 
nine months before that, I want to be born. Mom and dad, I want to be born. No, I, I had nothing to do with being born. I had nothing to do with the beginning of my life or the day of my birth. I had nothing to do with that whatsoever. We also have nothing to do with our spiritual salvation. It is God's work, but at salvation, when it comes, when the Spirit does His work, there's a human responsibility, and that human responsibility is to believe. And I believe that God even enables that because I believe the Bible teaches that our heart is so wretched that we don't have the power to do that, but I believe that it's, it's a decision that is made. I believe that God does the work, and I believe that we believe. So there is God's work, and there is the human responsibility that is connected with that. And this must have been something to see that day, to see 276,000 people or more look to this and be healed. In the last 2,000 years, there have been millions and millions of people who look to the man who was lifted off the earth, who brought heaven down, who descended from heaven to bring the message of salvation so that all who believe in him will have eternal life. So what does the sinner do? The sinner just falls and believes, falls on the message, falls on Christ and believes. So let's close with this. and I'm just going to kind of put these over here. Both of them pictures of salvation. But sadly, do you remember what happened with this in the Old Testament? This hung around. And in 2 Kings, guess what the Israelites were doing? Anybody have an idea what they were doing to the bronze serpent? They were worshiping it and sacrificing to it. So, listen. We talk about the cross. It is glorious, but we don't worship the cross. We worship Jesus. So we've got to be careful that this doesn't become an, even an idol for us like this became an idol for the Israelites. Now, we speak about this and we speak about that, but we've, we, we, we worship the one who died. There are thousands, of millions of people probably that died on crosses 2,000 years ago. The difference that made our Savior's cross different because he's the Savior and he's the Son of God. And so we worship him who was there. And so lift him up, lift up the serpent, Lift up Jesus. Lift him up, church. And whoever believes will be rescued. Salvation will come. So in detail, much bigger detail along these lines, but this is, this is the message for Nicodemus of saying, Nicodemus, you've got to look to the Son of Man who's lifted up. All right, let's pray.